you know, while the, the chemistry doesn't change, the consumer does. And so there's lots of interesting things to delve into in terms of, you know, not only ice cream, but also non-dairy ice cream, low fat, high fat, high protein, low sugar. You know, there's a lot of different consumers out there with different needs. And every time we change one of those major parameters to, to tailor it to a consumer, the, the whole system kind of changes and it needs to be looked at and studied a little bit. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, Brendan and I take a drive out to Guelph to chat with Derek Vela, the director of the Guelph Food Innovation Centre at the University of Guelph, to discuss his work in modern food processing. The GFIC has a rich 100-year history with a big focus on dairy farming and ice cream. In fact, as Derek informed us in the episode, the GFIC is actually an ice cream center of excellence. Did you know that ice cream can be too cold? It can. And it turns out that the solution to that is more complex than you might think. If you're listening to this and you have children, chances are that you've heard the words food and processing and immediately thought, ew, that's not healthy. Processing food makes it artificial and not as good for you. And I'll admit, those times when I made food from scratch, like, say, a nice sauce made from fresh tomatoes with homemade pasta, yeah, I patted myself on the back for making it. Much better than that prepackaged stuff. But as we came to learn, modern food processing is not what many people think. There's a lot of science behind it, and that body of science is growing, thanks to organizations like the GFIC and people like Derek. Keeping people fed in Ontario takes a lot of science, as we've come to understand from previous episodes of this podcast. But where that science focuses its attention is often directed by market demand. If the market demands ice cream, they get ice cream. When the market wanted options for ice cream other than dairy milk, new formulations were developed to satisfy that need. Simple, right? Well, not so fast. Swapping ingredients on century-old recipes, like ice cream, takes a deep understanding of how those ingredients work together and what properties they have individually. It's actually quite complex work. Cow milk and, say, almond milk, on a chemical level, are very different ingredients. Now, I'm glossing over a lot of technical stuff that Derek covers in the episode, so check the timestamp for the discussion. One of the most interesting takeaways from this episode was the list of opportunities that exist today in this expanding and evolving field of manufacturing and research. If young people are looking for an interesting career, take a look at the food industry. People will always need to eat. Derek himself, for example, began his career as a chef. Today he's formulating new recipes on a chemical level and changing how we think about food. So with that, here's me, Brandon, and Derek Bella discussing food and how we can keep on making it in Ontario. And it looks like, yep, the levels look pretty good. We're recording, we're rolling. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We're in a new place today, out in Guelph, and I am being joined again. By Brendan Sweeney. Brendan, please say hello and let's make sure your levels are good, right? Good morning. Check, my check. levels, are, my, and, yeah. there my levels you go. are good. Good. There you go. And we're also being joined by a new friend. Derek, would you please introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Derek Vela. I am the director of the Guelph Food Innovation Center here at the University of Guelph. The Guelph Food Innovation Center is essentially um, acting as a bridge between the Canadian food industry and all of the students and faculty and research that happens here at the University of Guelph. So 
under those auspices, we, 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 we have a number of different roles. We work with companies to do research and development, developing new food products, new processes. We do lots of analysis for companies. And then we also do a lot of custom processing or custom um, um, manufacturing for companies as well. Very cool. So you're saying the bridge between industry, academia, uh, sorry, what you say, industry and... And the, 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 the university or the Department of Food Science, yeah. So, you know, we have a lot of uh, in, invested knowledge here. We've got a lot of enthusiastic students and a lot of resources that we want to share with the food industry to help them innovate and get ahead and, you know, compete internationally. So as the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing, Brendan and I have spent tons of time in, you know, typical shop floors manufacturing, you know, this widget and that widget, a car part here, a rocket there, a guitar amp. <laughs> tell us a little bit about food. Tell us a little bit about you know, some of those flubs I was talking about. Tell us a bit about food manufacturing, because in my head, and this is something Brendan and I were chatting about earlier, the idea of food manufacturing, like it's, we think of it as, or at least I think of it as a, uh, almost like you, you imagine it being processed, yes, but you don't actually think about it as a manufacturing process, right? I think that the general public does not. Um, I think that if you spend much time in in, in a food processing environment. And, you know, I, I, I'm very conscious that for most of your listeners, these might sound like bad words, food processing and processed food and uh, manufacturing of food. You know, it all sounds a little bit sterile. But the reality is, is that every piece of food that you put in your mouth has been processed in one way or another, right? So when I'm saying processed, I'm not talking about making processed cheese. I'm talking about every piece of you know, microgreen that's been washed and put into a package to make sure it doesn't go bad overnight. I'm talking about every piece of brie cheese that you've ever put in your mouth. I'm talking about, um, you know, craft soda and, you know, all the way up to and including the processed cheese. So, you know, in order to maintain a safe and sustainable supply chain of food, we need to have interventions to make it um, stable and safe and everything else. And that is what we help companies with. And so, to answer your question, once we get into those environments where we are performing those roles, uh, it really is manufacturing, right? So, you know, the steps that we have and the unit operations that we have are very different from making an iPhone or a rocket or an amp, but um, it, it absolutely is a manufacturing environment and, you know, you'll see a lot of the same steps and quality control and, um, and, and finished packaging and testing that you'll see in any other environment. Very cool. So. We walked in here and the building said dairy. <laughs> That's right. So while we are currently sitting in the Department of Food Science here at the University of Guelph, this building started its life out as the dairy building. This building has been here for, I believe, 110 years. So we have a long history in dairy. Over that time, and, and you know, the University of Guelph started out as what was called the experimental farm. And it was essentially a agricultural research station that has then grown into being the University of Guelph. And a big piece of that was dairy. Obviously, it's a huge industry and commodity in Canada, always has been really from the very beginning. And so there was a big emphasis here. Uh, to this day, we still have cows on campus. We still have a lot of competency in dairy and dairy technology, but we've expanded to encompass uh, the entire length and breadth of food science, which in includes all of food categories. You have cows on campus? We do indeed, yeah. We have a basically a, a working dairy on campus. Um, and in my facility, we actually have a, a working dairy 
processing facility as well. So we can receive raw milk, we can process it into fluid, cheese, ice cream, and, and we do on a regular basis. Wow. Now, we were before we walked in, Brendan and I were actually remarking about, the, well, I was remarking about the bricks, and I was wondering, I wonder how old they were, and you just kind of answered that question, about 100 years old. And again, I'm a, I come from the world of manufacturing of other things. What can you tell me about the menu? What was it like 100 years ago when these bricks were just being laid in the in the dairy building? What sorts of things were different from, and I'm sure there are, but like what sorts of things were different from then to now? Wow. Uh, I, I think it, the short answer to that is, is a lot. <laughs> a lot has changed. In modern manufacturing, obviously, we have got a supply chain network that brings and pools the, the fluid cow milk to manufacturers. A lot more safety, a lot more quality control in place, um, really built on a lot of the research that has been done here at the University of Guelph over the last you know, uh, hundred some odd years. A lot more automation, a lot more high-tech manufacturing tools that we can use to maintain consistency and safety and all of these things. And just the number of food products that are based on dairy has really changed as well, obviously, right? So uh, 100 years ago, you would not have had the proliferation of cheeses. You would not have, uh, you know, aisles worth of, of ice cream. It was really considered to be a more fresh product. So, so, so really quite, quite a lot has changed. You said ice cream. We do a lot of work here uh, at the Guelph Food Innovation Center on ice cream. Really? Uh, and in the department as well. So one of our faculty members, Dr. Doug Goff, he is, I would say, you know, one of the leaders in, uh, in ice cream science and has published textbooks and has taught courses. In fact, we teach a professional ice cream course here. We have taught that course, I think, only through nine faculty over 105 years continuously. And so every year we have companies come from all over the world to learn about ice cream technology and frozen dessert technology. So there's an episode of Community where they're, they, they are all trying to be in the same class together. And the class they tried to land on was the history of ice cream. And now you're telling me that you have one of the most senior people in the in the field of ice cream sciences that's a field of study it is absolutely a field of study wow. and, and one that we continue to find new things to research and, and and really valuable and valid things to research because you know while the the chemistry doesn't change the consumer does and so there's lots of interesting things to delve into in terms of you know not only ice cream but also non-dairy ice cream low fat high fat high protein low sugar you know there's a lot of different consumers out there with different needs and every time we change one of those major parameters to to tailor it to a consumer the the whole system kind of changes and it needs to be looked at and studied a little bit wow so we teach ice cream at the Guelph Food Innovation Center. We do a lot of development in ice cream as well. So we work with, I would say, you know, in our portfolio of R&D projects, at any given time, we're usually working on probably 30 to 50% of those projects being somewhere in the space of ice cream, plant-based ice cream, keto ice cream, frozen desserts, novelties, um, that, that sort of thing. And we work with companies, again, from all over the world on those type of initiatives. What can you tell me about the non-changing? So you said that the chemistry of ice cream doesn't change, but other things have changed. Can you expand in on that a little bit? Like, tell me about some of the, like, what hasn't changed and then what has changed? Sure. So what, what, what does not really change is the consumer's expectation of what the ice cream should be like, 
So it should uh, be cold. Which, which is co which is cold, but believe it or not, one of the <laughs> one of the challenges that we have with ice cream is that it can be too cold, and it's one of the real defects that we look at. And while that sounds kind of counterintuitive, if there's not enough air whipped into an ice cream, or if it doesn't have enough, say, sugar in it, it can really take a lot of the heat out of your mouth. So, you know, I think everyone's had the experience of having brain freeze, um, yes. you know, or having your mouth go numb. Yep. Really good ice cream doesn't do that. You put it in your mouth, and it should sort of have a certain amount of weight in your mouth. It shouldn't be too, too cold so that you're, you're, you can't see anymore. And um, it, it should melt nicely and you should be able to taste it. So strangely enough, yes, it needs to be cold, but not too cold. Wow. So the consumer knows what they want their ice cream to be like. But when we take out um, dairy fat and we replace it with something else, or if we take out sugar and replace it with something else, we have a lot of work to do because it, change, it changes all those dynamics. So you have a lot of work to do to get that product back, you know, without the sugar or without the fat, back into a condition where the consumer says, ah, this is still ice cream. It still tastes the same, it still looks the same, even though a lot of those main components are no longer there. And with that, an ice cream snob was born. Hi, I didn't know that, that sounds incredible. So, wow, okay, so, the physical properties of ice cream. It has to be cold, but not too cold. And you can chemically change how it affects or how it hits your palate. So, you know, I, I think to say, and, and I don't want to get in the weeds too much here, but, you know, it's not something that, should, that we are chemically changing things. Ice cream is, is a very delicate balance between having kind of like a frozen foam, right? It's right. full of air. Um, it's not just milk that's been frozen. That would give you kind of an ice cube, and it wouldn't be, be very good. So it needs to be full of air. Those air bubbles are supported by a protein network that comes usually from, from the milk, and it also has little fat globules, and those fat globules also support that air. So it's more of a structural thing, if you can kind of think of it like that. You know, there, there's a lot of chemistry in the way that those different ingredients interact. So we're not really changing the foodstuffs chemically, what we're doing is we're trying to cajole them into getting into the right sort of formation so that they still give us the physical properties of ice cream. So, okay, so that's talking about dairy, but of course the, the, we entered the dairy building, but it's not just dairy anymore. Now it's GFIC, right? That's right. So the Guelph Food Innovation Center is a relatively new organization. We at the same time of a very long history. So the space that we occupy, which is our offices and our labs and our three pilot plants, all of that was actually put in place back in 1994 with a partnership between the Ontario Food Processors and Producers, the University, University of Guelph, and OMAFRA, uh, Ontario Ministry of uh, Food and Rural Affairs. So at that time, there was a initiative to put together a, a center like very similar to the one that we have now, that was to serve the Ontario and Canadian food industry. That entity operated for about 20 years as a non-for-profit and then was eventually merged into NSF. And once that merger took place, they moved off campus and it left a, a vacuum here essentially for the department to be able to leverage into what is now GIC. So I've been with the Guelph Food Innovation Center for the last four years. 
in that time, we have really transitioned from a brand new organization into what we are now, which is much more focused, much more robust, and much more targeted to certain sectors of the food industry. If I can characterize that, I'd say that those sectors really are focused around you know, dairy, which we've been talking about. Sort of adjacent to that is, is protein. So dairy, dairy alternatives, protein, protein alternatives. We also have some unique competencies in terms of extrusion, uh, spray drying, and functional beverages and thermal processing. So that sounds fascinating, but I assume that you're also doing that kind of work with other food as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. So we, we work across a lot of different categories. We don't work a lot with bakery or with fermented beverages because there's other centers out there that we work in concert with that take care of that. But over the years, yeah, we've, we've worked in, in all sorts of different categories ranging from protein bars, meat analogs, um, cellular agriculture, um, spray drying, you name it. Sorry, meat analog is? Oh, like plant-based meat or... Oh, like the Beyond Burger, Beyond sure. Meat. Okay, Th- right. Things like this, yeah. What, what are functional beverages? Uh, a functional beverage is essentially anything that is giving the consumer a, an additional benefit besides just having sort of a drink. So that would include a beverage that might be giving you vitamins, minerals, high protein load, fiber. In some cases, it might be, you know, you could argue that something like a nootropic or an adaptogenic beverage is giving you, again, you know, it's a functional beverage. It's giving you some sort of extra biological function that you're for for health or for uh, appearance. We ask this question of all of our guests that come on the podcast just because of the nature of where we are. How did COVID affect your operations? I know that before we flicked the microphones on, I saw you you and Brendan were chatting about, you know, just what it was like being on campus. But did COVID affect any of your areas of study, any of your priorities? How did it affect you guys? Sure. That's that's actually a really interesting question, I think. Um, We were quite lucky, I think, to have had a lot of experience working internationally prior to COVID. So... You know, I think one of the companies that we've worked with longest is a company called Pink Albatross. So they're a a plant-based ice cream company uh, based out of Spain. We started work with them in 2018, and they were a company that kind of came to us with some kitchen recipes. And over the last three years, we've really helped them grow into one of the fastest-growing plant-based ice cream companies or frozen dessert companies in Europe. And so... I think what makes that story interesting is, A, they have a great product, but, but B, we've never met. And so we had three years, essentially, of experience working remotely. Um, you know, how do you negotiate prototypes and samples and communicating processing steps and everything else um, over international borders when you've never even seen each other face-to-face? So we had a, a good fleshed-out toolkit about how to perform those activities before the shutdown in 2020. And so when that happened, you know, we had a mandatory shutdown for about a month and a half um, because of the uncertainty of those times, obviously. But we got permission to be back into our facility reasonably quickly and, and have, we actually kind of grew over that time because we were one of the few people that were out there, A, operating, but, um, you know, a lot of companies had to stop their own operations or had to change or pivot their own um, decision making in terms of what they were manufacturing or what their business operations were. So I think that many companies took that time to say, well, let's, this is a good time to reinvest in a pivot. And for a small company, that might be instead of doing a, a CPG, like a consumer packaged good, um, they might have been looking at 
launching something in food service and they would have pivoted to a consumer packaged good. Um, for other companies, it might just have been time to take stock and start investing in some of those new initiatives because they were essentially shut down. I'm going to go back to ice cream. If that's okay, <laughs> or did you, did you have anything? Uh, no, no, no. I, okay. Absolutely, I'll, I will ask them. Ice cream innovation, and and this was a couple months ago. We had an interesting chat, and the flavors. Right. What's new, and how does it work? Because I think it w some of the innovation in R and D and ice cream flavors happens a bit different than it happens in other industries and where do you fit in and again what, like what, what what kind of flavor profiles are we going to see moving forward that's a perennially interesting question if we look at the marketplace we will still see that canadian consumers remain pretty conservative in their in their flavor choices so chocolate and vanilla will will always sort of lead the pack followed closely by you know historical favorites, strawberry, mint chocolate chip, that sort of thing. At the same time, ice cream is a great platform for flavor innovation and for flavor exploration. You know, as are, you know, crisps, chips, uh, sodas, that sort of thing. It's a relatively inexpensive way to reward yourself and try something new. And there's definitely a certain consumer out there that wants to try something new. So in terms of new flavor development, I think that new flavors pop up all the time. We are seeing um, right now we're working with a company that is basing all of their ice cream flavors on Asian Far East beverage flavors. So things like Hong Kong milk tea, Thai iced tea, sesame, salted egg yolk. So really interesting novel flavors, but they're going after a consumer that really wants something that's novel. We are seeing growth in lots of citrus. We're seeing some companies start to explore even savory flavors. We just did a really interesting and unusual project for us. It was a um, work that we did between a company in Toronto called Creamery X and OLG, Ontario uh, Lottery and Gaming Commission, where we did a, a project where they wanted to develop ice cream flavors that tasted like winning the lottery. And so they challenged us to make four flavors with truly interesting and unusual and surprising flavors. And again, these are not commercial products. These are meant to surprise and delight. Each bar was in and of itself a lottery ticket. And we made four flavors, one of which was a, a high-end running shoe collection, a rare oil painting, <laughs> the, the taste of what a private island tastes like and a haute couture uh, handbag. And so, you know, by using real food as well as leveraging some, some flavor chemistry, we were able to make all four flavors. So these were ice cream bars. And so they now have a food truck, they go to special events, they sell them, they get engagement and introduce people to their services. And your, your team here, there are professional staff, there are, are there graduate students engaged in this work? Absolutely. So I do have a standing uh, full-time staff, but as part of the University of Guelph, one of our mandates is to support students and student learning. So at any given time, usually a third to a half of my staff are co-op students. So these are undergraduate students, typically fourth-year students that would join us for a whole year. They would join us at a state where they're very well educated, but not very experienced. And so over that course of that year, we really bring them from being relatively new to the food industry to what I would consider to be quite competent and experienced product developers by the end of it. And oftentimes, we will actually keep those students on to, to train the next group of uh, co-op students that are coming through. 
We also do engage with graduate students as well as students in the campus that are entrepreneurs. So we've got a few companies that have wanted to come through or, or groups of students that have wanted to come through and commercialize a product. So we've helped them. We've had students that have worked on competitions. So there's, there's lots of food product development and waste competitions. So how do we make more sustainable products? How do we leverage waste? How do we use things like coffee grounds or spent beer grain, that kind of thing? And part of my role adjacent to being director of the Guelph Food Innovation Center is I also teach the capstone food product development course in the department. So I, I co-teach that with, a, with our chair of the department as well as a faculty for marketing. And so with that, we actually get companies from the food industry to give us challenges. And we put together groups of food science students and marketing students, and then sometimes you know nutrition or finance. And so we form these multidisciplinary groups that will work on a single project for eight months, two whole semesters. And they do everything from the concept development all the way up to finished prototypes. So that is another layer of student engagement that we have. And, and with the marketing students finished prototypes and presumably a, a marketing strategy or a business plan. That's right. So That's cool. Yeah, so they all work essentially as a, as a small unit in the same way that you might work in, in any manufacturing environment, right? So one of the things that we recognized relatively early on is that it's great that you're a good food scientist and that you know the technology and everything else. You also have to know how to communicate. You have to be able to communicate your ideas to a non-technical audience. And it's, it's you know, starting to try and create products for a consumer based purely on technology is, is in my opinion, really wrong-headed. You really need to start with the consumer. You have to start with the target consumer, build a, uh, a, a value proposition for that consumer, and then apply the technology. And so in that course, that is essentially what we're doing. We're going through a very consumer-centric product development initiative where the food science students and the marketing students are interplaying back and forth on each other, working in a multidisciplinary environment, just like you would in industry, and obviously having to collaborate with all the stakeholders, ingredient suppliers, manufacturers, the sponsoring company, advisors, so on and so forth. So it, it really is a great and very unique program. Are there any particular projects, any success stories you're able to expand on? Or So, you know, to, to date, we've not had any of the group's projects um, be commercialized by the students. And I think that's largely because most students, you know, these are fourth-year students, this is the last thing they'll do in their degree. Most of them are eager to get into industry and get a job. Uh, we have a really high placement rate, um, so graduating students, it's, it's 94 plus percent placement. Most of those students don't have the, the funds or the desire to be entrepreneurs at that very moment. Some of them do. So we have had a couple of companies, a couple that I can think of, that didn't go on to develop their company based on the project that they did, but they did start companies. So one that comes to mind is a company called Acid League. So they are students, uh, former students of ours that went through that same course and then upon graduation did become entrepreneurs, did work with us here at GFIC in the early days. We still have an ongoing relationship with them. And so they have a business built around uh, essentially craft vinegar and, and all things adjacent to vinegar. And they've had incredible success over the last few years. I'm very proud of them. And, and so there's a few examples of that. Another one that comes to mind is a company called Fifth Bean. And that's a group of students that have essentially created a plant-based 
product that is an analog to say uh, a Bailey's or a Caroline cream liquor, like an Irish cream liquor, that is all based on Ontario soybeans. And so the idea is that if you get a pot of soybeans with four beans in it, that's pretty typical. But if you get one with a fifth bean in it, that's extra lucky. And so they called their company Fifth Bean. How is the plant-based protein or the plant-based alternative industry going, in your opinion? It seems there's been kind of fits and starts over the years. I mean, absolutely. The kind of growth and excitement that we were seeing, um, you know, I'd say really over the last five years, it, it's, it's been there. <laughs> you know, that, that plant-based world has been there since the, you know, 60s, essentially, right? And it grew very, very slowly over a long period of time. And some companies held on and stayed in there. Starting sort of five to 10 years ago, we saw massive growth in that area, lots of excitement. I don't see that growth stopping. I see there being sustained interest. I think that the consumer is going to continue to evolve and demand new things from that class of products. So initially, I think people were very happy to have a you know a plant-based burger that, that bled and everything else um, and was a reasonably good analog to an, a conventional beef burger. I think that we are going to increasingly see consumers that are going to be demanding cleaner ingredient decks, smaller ingredient decks, more transparency in terms of where that's being sourced from. And we are going to continue to see research on the nutritional effects of, uh, of those products as well. Now, I always thought that uh, a Licks Nature Burger was uh, the pinnacle of, uh, of a uh, plant-based uh, burger patty. But I guess Licks isn't really. I guess there's one more left in Perry Sound or something. But is there a bit of an interplay between the plant-based protein alternatives and us doing better with animal protein, whether it's more organic, more, um, I mean, you, you'd know some of the trends better, but is there kind of a, a, a balance there? Yeah, I, I think that looking at the, those food, I mean, y- y- the short answer is sure. I think that it's maybe a mistake to look at it from the categories of plant-based versus animal-based foods, believe it or not. I think that a lot of it comes down to the individual groups of consumers that are supporting those different types of products. The number one supporter of plant-based alternatives, plant-based beef in this case, is, is going to be omnivores. It's going to be people that they call flexitarians that will eat both meat as well as plant-based foods. So the criteria that they're using to choose what they're going to be eating is not the same as what someone who is vegan or someone that who has animal ethics issues or someone that is doing it for health reasons, right? So you have a a whole bunch of different consumers with totally different decision-making processes. So for someone who's not eating meat because they have uh, an ethical issue with animal protein, you know, making it more organic or more traceable or focusing on different, um, you know, meat characteristics, that's not going to appeal to them. For some of those flexitarians, it might. I think that there's lots of work to be done in terms of both improving the meat industry as well as improving the plant-based food industry. I think there's lots of space, in all honesty, for both. Derek, I'm going to change directions just a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the careers that are available in food production because we've spent some time looking at young people and where they're working. What types of careers are there available aside from, you know, the aforementioned, uh, was it the, the professor of ice cream? 
That's right. Yeah, there's only only one of those positions right now, though. Gotcha. So what other positions are available to the young people of Ontario? Absolutely. So as the, the Department of Food Science, we sit under the, the OAC college here at the university, which is the Ontario Agriculture College. It's, it's often said that it's difficult to attract people to agriculture because their image of it is someone sitting on the back of a tractor. And I think in the food industry, it's very similar. The, the general image of a young person coming into this industry is that you're working on a production line, maybe gutting fish or, you know, we all seen the Lucille Ball um, uh, that assembly up. line, trying, yeah. yeah, a very assembly <laughs> line. The the food industry is the number one largest industry in the world, above anything else. Everyone has to eat in every corner of this planet, and so there is a lot of different roles to be had. So my background, I I started my career as a chef. I was in culinary for many many years before I then transitioned into food science, and then. Uh, have found myself in this role. Coming into to food science, I had no idea what kind of roles were out there. And so just to start off with, there's roles in quality, quality control. There's roles in product development, so similar to what my group does. There are people that design, develop, maintain the equipment. There is a, a, a whole industry just based around flavor. And you can become a master flavorist in the same way that you could become a master uh, perfumer or anything else. It's about a seven-year degree, so you're spending almost the same amount of time that you would be to become a doctor. And what you're doing there is having a, a fundamental understanding of the chemicals and the interactions of flavors that go into our food. And those flavors go into almost all of our foods. There's people that focus solely on food safety. There's people that focus solely on understanding what consumers taste and how they taste, a whole world of sensory. Uh, I could go on and on and on and on. If, if you are interested in something that is adjacent to food, there is probably a, a, a very interesting professional role in the food industry. And a lot of those roles absolutely exist in Canada. I kind of want to actually talk a little bit more about what, like, how do you become a flavor expert? Like, that's like, it's a seven year program, but you kind of just blew my mind on that. Like, how do you, what are the classes? So this is not something that we do at the University of Guelph. Oftentimes you would graduate with, you know, say a degree in chemistry or a degree in food science. So you've done your undergrad. You would then typically go into a large flavor house. So uh, examples of that would be Jivadon or Sentient or Bell. There's lots of flavor houses out there. Each one kind of specializes in different areas. That person would get hired in as sort of a, a, a junior employee and typically apprentice under a, a flavorist and then they would go through the schooling and the, the testing process to become certified and then there's different grades of that certification. I know I keep going back to this but that issue of, of filling the talent pipeline and having young people understand what roles are available I think is 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 uh, I, I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. So you, let's let's look at your career path for a second. So you started as a chef, right? Sure. So I started in culinary. You know, I grew up, I graduated early 90s, essentially. And at the time, you know, this was pre-internet, essentially. It was really tough to understand what kind of roles were out there. I knew I was interested in science. I knew I was interested in food. I had no idea that a discipline, even like food science, existed. And it took me a lot of years to eventually find it. And so... Even then, once I found it, it, it took years of 
being involved in the food industry, being exposed to different things to really understand how, how vast the, the opportunities are. I really could sit here all day and, and rattle on different interesting Rattle roles, on a bit. Know. Go well, for it. Well, I mean, you know, if, if we look at your average food product, each one of them has to consider things like the flavor, the shelf life, the safety, the packaging. You know, where do those ingredients come from? Where did the idea of that product come from? Where do the trends come from? Who's the consumer that's going to eat it? What are the logistics like to get it there? You know, what's the retail environment that's going to, you know, so each one of these things, you know, spawn off, you know, all the, the consumer dynamics and the sourcing and, you know, where do you get the best cocoa pods from? And where does the next new interesting trend come from? And where, you know, how can we create a pipeline to grow the next citrus fruit that right now is so hot, but there's only one acre growing of it in, you know, Belize or something. You know, so, I mean, if you're into agronomics, if you're into uh, logistics, if you're into packaging or materials or processing or food or trends or consumers or retail, you know, it, it really is vast and expansive. The fact that food is perishable means that there's a whole world of packaging and strategies. You know, how do we make it safer, healthier, last longer? How can we preserve nutrients? There's academia. There is um, the, the whole culinary side. There's a whole group of people out there that are essentially research chefs, and they are, they bridge between culinary and food science and industry. Research so, chefs? Yeah. So there's an organization called the Research Chef Association. And the Research Chefs Association, they essentially foster this, this, this hybridized role between being a chef and being a food scientist. Bernard, you look like you want to ask a few questions. I can't tell if you're leaning forward or... I got a million questions, and I just... Uh, it, it, I don't know if they flow quite from what we were just talking about, but yeah. when, when we think about a lot of... Um, well, anyway, we, we, we do a lot of work across manufacturing, and one of the things that we're always looking at is what's the total economic impact of an industry is, and we often frame that in multiplier benefits, right? One job here creates... X jobs here and there. And, you know, the automotive industry has long been held up as the industry with the highest multiplier, although that multiplier has came down a bit recently for a number of reasons. And it's not quite true that it's the highest multiplier. We ran, and I, I can show you a little piece we did. We ran some of these numbers, and dairy products and animal food were the highest. Um, and right? particularly with dairy products, it is a maybe not a provincially contained, but it's really a nationally contained industry. And to me, it shows the value of sourcing materials locally, doing production locally, and selling it and consuming it locally. How important to the GFIC or the University of Guelph, or in your opinion, or, or uh, to food in Ontario, how important is it that we are using milk products from locally raised livestock, cows, sheep, goats, processing it locally and consuming it locally and near where it's processed? And, and in some cases, you know, think about Shaw's and whether you're, you're in St. Thomas or Tilsonburg or Port Stanley, but you could run into the three Shaw's sisters at any at the grocery store, at any at the market or something at any given point in time. How important is it? I mean, because we've seen that numerically, it's economic. the The economic benefits are massive. I hope people know about that. In general, 
whether it's the economic benefits, the social benefits, the innovation benefits, how important is it that we do a lot of this in the same province? Uh, sure. So I'm not an economist. So in terms of the economic benefits, this is not a lens that we typically look at through uh, at the GFIC. In terms of how we interact with those those different stakeholders, whether it be the DFO, um, farmers, innovators, I, I think it's incredibly important. Um, you know, first of all, we exist in a system that really reinforces that. Um, I don't think that most consumers know that the f- milk that they are buying is really a local product. I think that we live in a consumer food environment where it's not unusual that you know the apples that you're eating are coming from New Zealand. I think that most consumers are very surprised, in fact, that the milk that you're consuming, in all likelihood, is a very local product. And that is because of the supply chain networks formed by the DFO. From a food handling perspective, uh, it makes tons of sense being able to take you know, what is a somewhat variable agricultural product, like most agricultural products are, blending it, pooling it, grading it, the quality control processes in place through our milk supply chain is incredible. Each batch is tested. Each batch is tested multiple times, in fact, for safety, for quality, and then is pooled so we can get a safe, clean, reliable, consistent source of milk. And then the fact that we can do things even such as, you know, ultra-local on-farm processing means that Ontario consumers really could be the beneficiaries of a lot of diverse products. So um, it doesn't need to be the scale that has to serve the mass market, either nationally or internationally. Um, Companies and small farms and individuals can create products that are more niche and more interesting and more unique. you know, going back to what we were talking about before in terms of, of, you know, different consumers desiring different things and flavors and that sort of thing. If you need to roll out a product nationally or internationally, you really need to kind of serve the common denominator. Whereas if you're dealing on a local level, uh, you can serve that locality and it's a much more specific consumer. You don't have the same kind of overheads and that means that you can take a few more risks. You can do some more interesting things and that just speaks to developing the, the unique character and characteristics and unique products that, that we can have as, as a region versus serving you know, an international market. So on the innovation side, um, super important. On the food safety and supply chain side, equally important. I'm a local, small town Ontario ice cream manufacturer. I've developed a, you know, a certain local following, um, you know, built over a couple of years in the summer, you know, in our in our short but wonderful summers, um, and I'm looking to grow, and I've got indications, I've got market research that says my product will sell elsewhere in Ontario, it may sell elsewhere in Canada, it may even sell elsewhere in the world, and I'm looking for a bit of help in a number of facets of my business, whether it's product development, whether it's process development, whether it's marketing. How would I even start if I wanted some help from you and the GFIC? How would I even start to get my head around that? How would I get in touch with you? How how, how would uh, how would we work on that? Sure. Yeah. So uh, so this is really what we are doing here at the GFIC day in day out. Um, our role really is a stepping stone, and so for the company that you're describing, they're a small company that wants to grow. We can be the stepping stone up. 
as much, if not more often, we are working with large companies that are a stepping stone down. And what I mean by that is that for a small company, they have the they have the challenges of, you know, how do we create a commercial product that we can then scale, put into large production, and then retail. With large companies, the problem that they have is that for them to trial a new and innovative product, if they want to trial it on their line, they will turn their lines on. They're already at scale, so they'll turn their lines on, and they've already produced 10,000 kilos of that product, and that's not a good, efficient way to do, to do testing. So we work with both ends of the spectrum. We work with large companies to do um, small-scale development and trials so that they can scale up, and then we can also work with companies like you, the one that you're describing, small company, to, to grow into a large company. So to get that process started, they would contact us. They would go to the um, University of Guelph website or our website, which is foodscienceinnovation.ca. We essentially would start out by doing a bit of a red flag analysis with you. So we'd take a look and make sure that you are indeed ready. And that's the biggest thing for a new company is to make sure that they are actually ready to make the investment, to spend the time. They, they really have a product and a consumer that is worth scaling. If not, we go back to those consumer-centric uh, development fundamentals and we would walk them through a process and say, okay, well, here's what it would take to um, arrive at a product that is then worth developing. And what I mean by that is that if you have something that is too niche and you want to scale into a, uh, a national audience, there's a good chance that you are going to stumble and fail with that. We need to find something that has validated demand out there so that you can then launch those niche products later when you have a bit of cash flow. Once we have a uh, what looks like a, a good project, we go through a whole scoping process. So one of the historical challenges that innovation centers have always had is you know, we have, we have a lot of smart people here. We have a lot of talented people here. We've got a lot of great equipment, scientific apparatus. We can make almost anything, but not everything is scalable at a co-packer. First of all, you need to know what the ecosystem is like. So what co-packers are out there? What sort of formats can they make product in? You know, these are all things that we have seen companies stumble on and they invest a lot of money and then, and then can't complete. So the first thing is road mapping. We create a roadmap, we get them on that roadmap, and then we would start doing R&D with them. R&D is, depending on the level of difficulty, I would say, you know, that could last two months, it could last eight months. We've worked on projects for two years. So obviously there's costs and there's timelines associated with that. If you're in ice cream, like you're describing, you're lucky because we have a pilot plant here that we can actually be your initial stepping stone into commercial production. So we can bring the milk in, we can scale it up, we can make products as small as two liters and in large enough quantities, um, like a small co-packer, thousands of liters. Um, after the scale-up process, you would then start essentially approaching markets and, and get your product out there. So each company's um, uh, roadmap is going to be a little bit different. Not all industries have a co-packer out there, or if they do, it may not be in Canada. Not all products are simple. We have a, a lot of experience with frozen dairy and ice cream. I would say that we are really a, an ice cream center of excellence. In other categories, you know, we, we may, if you were to come to us, we may say, well, you know what, we, we aren't the best option for you. You should go talk to Niagara College or you should go talk to George Brown or Conestoga. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's an incredible demand for these type of services out there. Um, and there seems to be uh, companies in all stages and all different categories, food, food categories, ranging from 
you know, pretty straightforward things like conventional ice cream all the way up to cellular agriculture and plant-based products that, that are a bit more challenging to bring to market. I've got lots more to say, so maybe we'll have to bring you back another time and talk about extrusion. Ooh, is there something you want to add right now? Uh, so, so I, I guess, um, you know, extrusion is one of the things that we do here at the Innovation Center that is, is unique. Uh, I probably should have taken the time to talk about some of these things before. Um, <laughs> there, there's a variety of centers like us, and I mentioned some of them, Niagara, George Brown, so on and so forth. We all have our own unique capabilities. And here at the Guelph Food Innovation Center, some of our unique capabilities, we talked about ice cream, so we talked about dairy. We also have a twin screw extrusion, which allows us to take things like starches and proteins and, and, and transform them under heat and pressure into things like the Beyond Burger, or um, in fact, there's a new generation of plant-based products that are coming that actually have fibers. So we can take plant protein and really make them look and feel and taste like pulled pork or like turkey leg meat or like tuna. Um, so it's relatively new technology, um, a lot of interest there. Some other things your listeners might be interested in is we do spray drying. So if you've ever had a protein powder or a instant coffee or a powdered sugar, uh, like a powdered maple product, um, these are all spray dried products. And so we do lots of work in that space as well. Um, and we've spray dried lots of you know, lots, lots of milk and whey and all of those sort of things. But we've also done algae and we've done um, coffee and iced tea and all sorts of things like that. And then lastly, I would say that there's a technology that I think very, very few people know about, although they might be familiar with the products, and it's called high pressure processing. So um, pasteurization is something that I think everyone knows pasteurized milk. We basically heat it. We kill all of the bugs in there that might make you get sick, and then it la la makes it last longer. But it also cooks it a little bit. It changes the taste. And so with high pressure processing, instead of using heat, we just use incredible amounts of pressure. And so if you can imagine your car tire, which has a lot of pressure behind it, has about 35 PSI. This, this piece of equipment goes up to 135,000 PSI. Wow. So that is a lot of pressure. And it's enough pressure that it means that we can take things like fresh produce, um, avocados, lobster, and process it this way. There's no chemicals. There's no heat. It's just pressure. And it means that instead of getting you know, your spinach and carrot juice that's going to taste like sort of soup because it's been cooked, you get what you have on the shelf, like um, all of the fresh pressed juices that are safe, but also taste completely fresh. It's also why you can buy now, you know, avocados, for instance, or guacamole that isn't that, you know, awful green color like what used to be on the market maybe 10, 15 years ago. You now can really get fresh avocado that won't brown for you. So, interesting, unique capabilities. And, uh, you know, these are just tools that we use to make products with fewer chemicals, fewer artificials. Um, and in most cases, I'd say 99% of the projects that we work on for companies are, are clean label. So they don't have artificial colors, no artificial flavors, no artificial preservatives, because that's really what the consumer wants. That's really cool. So instead of use, so you just kill it with pressure. We just kill it with pressure. Wow. And I, I almost feel as though that idea to use pressure to kill the germs, I almost feel like that's some poor student that came up with that. I was like, I don't know, we need some other idea to kill this bacteria. I don't know, pressure? Wait, that might work. 
it, it, it's, a, it's a technology that's been around a long time, and it's just sort of coming to to a stage where it's commercially available. So any like any of those products that I mentioned, that you if you go into the fresh juice aisle, so cedar juice, for instance, they would be using something like a high-pressure processing to make sure that they have really fresh-tasting product that can last a long time. That's awesome. Now, I believe you mentioned something about ice cream. Let's go. Awesome. Thank you, Derek. <laughs>